This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, the future of the family business. Hockey fights cancer and the holiday season spending budget. But we begin with your health through the holidays. Officials, including Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Teresa Tam, are sounding the alarm when it comes to the flu, RSV, and of course, COVID-19 over the next few weeks. There is concern that flu cases will peak right around Christmas, a time when no matter what you're celebrating, family and friends want to and need to get together. Could these celebratory gatherings become super spreaders? How are we to enjoy holiday cheer without fear and prevent and protect while ringing in the new year? Dr. Alan Grill is the Chief of Family Medicine at Markham Stovall Hospital, Oak Valley Health. He joins us now with his insights and his advice. Welcome to the feed, Dr. Grill. Thanks, Ann, for having me. It's great to be here. So why might flu cases peak during the holidays? So influenza or the flu is a common virus that we actually see every year here in Canada. It usually starts sort of mid to late December and goes it can go as far as mid-March. Um, it's very typical of coming every year during that season. And the reason why it comes at that time usually is that, you know, winter's setting in, people go indoors, they're getting together for holidays, they're mingling, and the flu virus can spread very easily from person to person. We also know that the flu is coming every year because in southern hemisphere countries like Australia, they get it earlier than us, and that can usually predict how bad it's going to be here. The one difference this year is that the flu has come a bit early. So we started seeing cases sort of late November, early December, which is a bit earlier than what we usually expect. And still with the flu, according to Dr. Tam's Twitter, just this past week, kids and teens continue to experience unusually high influenza activity. Age 0 to 19 years account for 46% of lab detections and pediatric hospitalizations. In other words, young people are taking it on the chin. Yeah, so influenza, when we test people, usually when they come into the emergency room or there's some family practice offices that do surveillance testing, we are seeing a lot of positive cases of influenza, particularly in young people. We're also starting to see it in older people, and we're expecting that number to go up. And remember, young people interact with older people, right? We go to visit our grandparents. Some of us have older parents. Everybody gets together, especially uh, during the holiday season. So everybody is at risk of influenza, which is one of the reasons why in my office we heavily promote the flu vaccine. It's a free vaccine. You can get it every year. It's usually offered at the end of October. So I got mine almost a month ago, but it's still available, and it isn't too late to get the shot to both protect yourself and those around you from influenza. And I want to add to what we're talking about and making it a triple threat. So we've got influenza. We also have RSV, which has just been incredibly uh, pervasive through the past few months, and particularly with young people. And, of course, good old COVID. So we've got flu, COVID, and RSV. Makes it a really challenging uh, few weeks ahead of us. No, absolutely. So, you know, my hospital, Oak Valley Health in particular, we had quite the surge of younger kids getting RSV, being hospitalized. Some of them needed, you know, supplemental or extra oxygen. And these kids were very sick. Um, the, the hospitalizations for RSV are starting to decrease, but we're still seeing lots of cases. You know, Ottawa just had to call in the Red Cross 
for their children's hospital to get extra staff. So it has been a big problem. The other issue when you're dealing with viruses like RSV, particularly in young kids, influenza, which can impact young kids, middle-aged, older people, and of course COVID-19, is the biggest risk is where vulnerable people, specifically very young seniors, those with compromised immune systems, they can get very sick and they can end up in hospital. And we already know that our healthcare system is under strain, right? The pandemic has caused things like delayed surgeries. We're still catching up even on, ele- uh, on elective procedures. We have a nursing shortage because of burnout and some people have left the profession. So when you add all that up together, it's a real burden. So what we're trying to do is to give advice on how to protect yourself from getting really sick so that the healthcare system isn't under so much strain because at the end of the day, we still have people that need treatment for their chronic disease, mental health and addiction, you know, fractures, all of those things. And we want to make sure that our resources can service our communities and give Canadians and Ontarians what they expect from our publicly funded healthcare system. And with that in mind, can you give us some advice on how we protect and prevent over the Christmas break, both young and old, and keeping in mind that a great number of Canadians, they're still, in spite of the warnings, they're still going to get together for for holiday cheer and for for family and friendly gatherings. Absolutely. And again, I think it's very important that people get together especially during the holidays. It's a nice time of year. You know, it's, it's less stressful. It's something that people really look forward to, and it's a really great release in terms of mental health. I would say that, for starters, vaccination. So flu shot and getting updated on your COVID vaccine. So the flu shot I mentioned earlier, the COVID vaccine, we have a new bivalent vaccine which targets the original COVID strain and the current Omicron, Omicron strain that's floating around. If you've had COVID within the last three months, I would wait for that three-month period to end before getting your vaccine. And if you're relatively healthy, the recommendations are actually saying that if it's been six months from your COVID infection or your last COVID vaccine, you can actually wait a six-month period. So three to six months is the time window. So that will hopefully you know, give you some protection from getting infected. The second thing I would do is that if you're feeling unwell, if you have a runny nose, a cough, a sore throat, you're feeling yucky, stay home until you recover, you know, at least 24 to 48 hours. Don't go to a get-together and, and with people so that you can spread your germs and get them sick. If you're feeling relatively well and you're getting together with other people, there's still some things you can do at the place where you're sort of having your party. So have some hand sanitizer at the door so when people come in, they can clean their hands or remind them to clean their hands before you sort of sit down and break bread with each other. You know, make sure that you you either open the windows to improve ventilation or if it's super cold, maybe get a HEPA filter or two. They're not expensive. You know, maybe everybody can chip in and that will just help with the air circulation within the place you're getting together. Trying to keep the amount of people getting together to a minimum is also important. You know, the, the larger the crowd, the more the interaction, the more the chance that somebody could be spreading a virus, even if they feel totally well. And finally, you know, if you're somebody who still wants to get together, but you're either really nervous about getting sick, or maybe you have a compromised immune system or a complicated medical history, please feel free to wear a mask at that get-together. You could also potentially eat your food in a separate room so that you have less interaction. And for those hosting parties, Let's make everybody feel comfortable. If people want a mask, let them wear a mask. Don't make anybody feel 
that just because they're doing something a little bit different, that they shouldn't feel welcome at your party. So I think if we're all supportive, you know, the Canadian way is to be supportive of mm-hmm. each other. Yes. That's the best advice I can give to people in terms of getting together over the holidays and trying to keep as safe as possible. Dr. Grill, also people should think about the risks and make informed decisions. But i got to say, and I, maybe I'm one of them, people are sick and tired of health warnings, particularly for the holidays after, what, 2.5 years of COVID restrictions and lockdowns, now a thing of the past. But we're seeing these health warnings for the holidays. So how do we come to grips with it? How do we make informed decisions? And how do we still have fun? No, absolutely. And I would say that, you know, there is definitely a lot of fatigue out there when it comes to getting public health advice and and constantly hearing about the pandemic. I mean, we've been in this pandemic for two and a half years, and, you know, it, it has been exhausting. But, you know, I do want to remind the public that COVID and other viruses like the flu, they're going to be around for a long time. We have to get used to the fact that the risk is never really going to go away. It's never really going to go to zero. So we just have to remind each other in a friendly way with some of the advice I just gave on how to stay safe. That being said, I think it's really important that we continue to have important public health messages like Dr. Tam, who let the public know what the other implications of these viruses are, right? So if you have somebody who's young and healthy who looks at the situation and says, yeah, you know, if I get sick, you know, it won't be so bad and I'll be fine. You have to think about the fact that there's still tons of people in our community, like the elderly, like the very young, like those with compromised immune systems, that are at really high risk. And even younger people will eventually, you know, need to use the healthcare system. We don't want people waiting 14 hours in the emergency room. We don't want people's elective surgeries like hip replacements delayed. And the only way we can we can sort of prevent that is if we all get together to try to prevent this extra illness so that our healthcare system has the capacity to take care of anybody that needs to use it. So I kind of like think of it as your own individual risk is one thing, but we have to think broadly about the overall community risk. And some of the steps that we keep reminding people about, you know, they're not that hard. I'll tell you that in my own office, we still make everybody mask, no matter if you're a patient or a staff. We've had very little pushback because everybody just respects that we're trying to be an environment that is protecting our patients so that we can be there for our patients for many years to come. And I think if we all sort of take that patient collegial approach, that will help uh, people across Canada during this winter surge. Mm. Dr. Alan Grill, Chief of Family Medicine at Oak Valley Health's Markham Stovall Hospital, thank you so much for your prescription for good holiday health. Much appreciated. My pleasure, and have have a wonderful holiday season. And you as well. Thank you. Next, how to navigate the stress and anxiety of the holidays on our mental health. Kevin Frankish with that story. According to a new study by digital health platform Felix, 46% of Canadians are currently experiencing at least one mental health issue, with nearly half of the population struggling with mental health challenges. The study found that only one in four Canadians had even looked for professional help during the last two years. And that's something I want to talk about right now. Not so much the the amount of depression, but how you can get help because the whole mental health community um, professionals has changed. Dr. Kelly Anderson is medical director with Felix and joins me right now. Hi, Dr. Anderson. Hello. Thank you for having me. Let's uh, let's get right into this. 46% of Canadians currently experiencing at least one mental health issue. I always find these numbers pretty low. And I think the, the reason they're low is 
people, again, don't want to admit it or talk about it. I would agree with you. I saw the stat and I'm also a practicing family physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. And I feel like so many of the visits I have lately, you know, I have my door, my hand on the doorknob um, to finish the visit. And people are saying, hold on, there's just this one other thing I want to talk about. And it's always mental health. It's depression, it's anxiety. And I feel like it's incredibly prevalent right now. And, and I say it often, and I will say it again. I have severe depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. I don't care who knows because it's a health issue. If I had a broken leg or I had a cold, I wouldn't mind telling someone, hey, I've got a broken leg. So it, for me, it's no different. But there is still the stigma that prevents people from saying that. Absolutely. And I think it, it can be compounded by a few factors. One is if you are fortunate enough to have a family doctor, um, you you may have known them your entire life. You may feel uncomfortable revealing this part of yourself. Um, and then so many Canadians actually have, you know, 6 million Canadians don't have a family doctor. So we're looking at millions of Canadians with mental health challenges uh, with sort of nowhere to go to get help. And that's why digital health platforms like Felix are so important, especially right now, to help people access the mental health care that they need in a way that's discreet and non-judgmental and inclusive and, you know, on their schedule also. And there's two reasons we really need to talk about this now uh, uh, with the holidays coming up. That is the stress and anxiety caused by perhaps Christmas itself, whether it's money problems, shopping, uh, gifts, or just family problems. And the other thing is, it's a time when the family gets together. There is no better time to talk about this than on the holidays. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's also one of the most difficult times to perhaps access traditional in-person care. Um, but, you know, I, I think... In this time where people are running around trying to get their holidays organized, facing, you know, emotional stressors, financial stressors, I think a lot of people question, you know, is this a normal amount of anxiety and depression? Is this something I should reach out about? Is it something, you know, is it not serious enough to reach out? And I do think, you know, we know only a quarter of people with a mental health challenge actually reach out for help. And I think it's, sometimes this thinking it's not serious enough or it's not, you know, they don't want to take up the resources of the healthcare system. And so they struggle alone. Um, and I'm so passionate about encouraging people to reach out for help um, and, you know, have that discussion, have it with your family doctor. If you have a family doctor, if you don't reach out to a platform like Felix, where you can connect with a doctor or a nurse practitioner, um, and sort of discuss what's going on, and you can work together to create a plan. I think one of the first things we need to do, we need to get rid of the word depression. Anytime I talk to someone about this, I'm not sad. I, I'm not depressed. And, and we need to, first of all, get past that hurdle, letting people know you could be the happiest person on the world, on, on the earth, and, and still you could live with depression. Maybe we could call it like, I don't know, kerbooble flop or something like that. Maybe Dr. Seuss could help us out. But I think we need a 
better word for it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly now like a stigmatized word. You know, I think people feel a real barrier to admit, well, a lot of feelings, to be honest, but we're all humans and we all have feelings and they're going to be all over the map. They're going to be, you know, good feelings, joy, happiness. They're going to be bad feelings, guilt, sadness, anxiety, um, and all humans experience all feelings. And I think when we, you know, try to put a box around it, um, then people latch on with their identity. You know, they think, oh, if I have depression, that means something about me as a human. Like it means something about my worth. It means something about who I am in the world. Um, but when, what it really is, is just sort of a universal part of the human experience. And I think one thing doctors can do, and I find myself, I'm doing so often, is normalizing this for people. I think you feel so isolated when you're sad or anxious and you feel like you are the only one. But I'm sitting in my office or seeing people online and, you know, I might see 20 people in a day and at least half of them are going through the same thing. And one of the most empowering messages I feel I have to share is this is so common and you are not alone. Okay, we're going to do a little role playing here. (laughs) Uh, I am going to play the part of a person who is just now feeling as though something's just not right and and they need some help. And you're going to play the part of mm, a doctor. Okay. And, and we're going to, I'm just going to tell you something and, and, and you can tell me how I can find better help for it. So you all set? For sure. All right, here we go. I will preface that by usually if I'm having a mental health conversation with a patient it is much longer than a radio interview, okay. but I'm willing okay. to do the role. <laughs> All right, folks, keep this in mind. This, 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 is, this not is condensed. <laughs> this is uh... it's condensed. It's not formal medical advice. Okay. Oh, Go ahead. You know, doc, I just, I just don't feel myself and, and, and I, oh, I, I'm just feeling really kind of weird lately. Mm-hmm. How long has that been going on? I, it's just been building and building. And, and now it's just, I'm so distracted all the time. How do I get help? So I'm so glad you've come in to talk to me about this. I feel like there's lots of things in your in your personal life that we should explore to see if we can put our finger on what it is that might be causing the most stress right now. Um, and then we can also strategize ways to address it. You know, some people benefit from counseling and there are both options that are covered by insurance or options like uh, bounce back which is telephone counseling that's funded uh, by provincial governments Um, and then you know there are many medications that we use that are safe most people have no side effects um, not addictive and not something you need to take forever and sometimes a mental health medication can sort of carry you through a time when you need a little bit more support and a doctor and a nurse or a nurse practitioner are great avenues to explore whether that's something that you need right now or whether you need more support with something like counseling. And then there's basic building blocks of, of life, like making sure you're getting eight hours of sleep, getting outside once a day, you know, talking to people in your family about what's going on, reaching out to friends, making sure that you're seeing other humans and not isolating at home. 
like eating three meals a day. There are a lot of simple things that we often overlook that are really supportive for mental health. Um, so we could explore that as well. What about all these these internet uh, sites I hear of where you can go online? The interesting thing about mental health is it often does not require an in-person physical examination, um, which makes it super amenable to online visits. So you can have a video visit or a phone visit or use secure messaging to talk to a healthcare professional online. And it can be incredibly comprehensive and safe. Um, and, you know, I find in my practice that people really enjoy having that virtual option because it means they can schedule it at a time that works for them. It's more convenient. They don't have to travel uh, to, to, you know, make an appointment, travel to an office, miss work. Um, and it also feels more discreet, more comfortable. You're in your own home environment. Uh, you might be able, might feel more comfortable to reveal what's actually going on. Um, and, you know, through avenue, avenues like Felix, you're speaking to a licensed Canadian physician or nurse practitioner um, that also works, you know, in our hospitals and in our family health teams and can offer you the same comprehensive safe care online that you would receive in person. And seen. You're brilliant. Have you played a doctor before? <laughs> Maybe um, once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the point is, is there is hope, there is treatment, and it's better sooner rather than later. Uh, like you said, you've talked about Felix, and Felix are the ones that did this study, and you're, you're with them. There are a number of other sites as well, but uh, if you want to just even check it out, it's it's not going to cost you anything, and and no one has to know you even checked it out, felixforyou.ca. Um, it, it might be the best you know, little investigation that you've done for yourself. Yeah, I think if you're asking the question, should I reach out about my mental health? That is the answer. You might as well reach out and then someone can sort of guide you through the questions to figure out what might come next. All right. Thank you very much for this, Dr. Anderson. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Kelly Anderson, Medical Director with Felix, uh, felixforyou.ca and you know what? We need this going into the holidays. When we come back, celebrations reborn. Yeah, it's a thing. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. Are Canadians heeding the health warnings by medical officials heading into the holidays? Will the threat of extremely high case numbers of flu, RSV, and COVID alter people's plans to get together? Abacus Data, a research and strategy firm, posed that very question, among others, in a recently released survey affectionately called Holiday Celebrations Reborn. And the findings may surprise you. Joining us to sift through the survey is Oksana Kishchuk, Director, Strategy and Insights, Abacus Data. Good to have you with us, Oksana. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So what was the motivation for this particular survey, which is holiday 
celebrations reborn. What prompted Abacus Data to conduct the survey? Yeah, I mean, we always every year kind of leading up to the holidays like to do a bit of a survey. Pre-COVID, it was a bit more light and, and fussy about favorite cookies and favorite songs. But over the last couple of years, we really started to add questions like this to see whether or not people are, are gathering and going to see their loved ones. And and there's been some sort of changes in social circles um, for, for confidence about gathering from last year to, to this year. And so we were really curious to see um, what that meant for the holidays. So let's break down some of the numbers. And we begin with this, uh, health warnings from officials right across this nation saying flu cases are on the rise, RSV is is out of control in a way, and COVID-19 is not going away. So just 12% of the people you ask intend to restrict their holiday plans to household members. That's down from 51% just last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a big, big jump um, we're, we're seeing. And, and like you said, um, COVID cases might be changing and, and look a lot different from last year. And maybe folks' comfort levels are, are more comfortable with, with COVID. But there's a lot of other illnesses circulating as well. So these results are, are surprising for a number of reasons. So it sounds like people are are fully intending to get together come heck or high water, if you will. They're, they're just not going to pay attention to the health warnings. Is that correct? Yeah, so most people say they're, they're going to get together and, and, uh, and of that group, um, so 44% of Canadians say they're going to get together uh, with their family from different households, but they're going to be extra cautious and safe. So there are still some of those precautions, um, sort of awareness of, of that maybe gathering isn't the right thing, but people are still planning to leave their houses and, and mingle with other people for sure. Now, the survey was conducted at the end of November. At that point, many said to you that they would take a wait-and-see approach. So now we're waiting and we are seeing these health warnings. Do you think that that's going to... If you were to take the survey today, if you were to ask it today, would the results be any different from the ones that you uh, got at the end of November? Mm-hmm. I mean, we well, we, we tried to sort of gauge that a little bit in the survey and asked um, back then, uh, no recommendations had, had necessarily been in place, but we said, what if um, provincial governments and health authorities stepped in and said, you shouldn't be gathering, what would you do then? And still, the majority of, of individuals say they're, they're going to get together, still exercise those, those cautions, but still, uh, nonetheless, uh, leave their house and, and mingle with other people. One of the questions if health authorities were to outright discourage gatherings, 20% said that they would heed the advice. Overall, though, Canadians will not be halting their plans. 39% would still gather but would be extra cautious, as you had mentioned. 34% would celebrate no matter what health authorities say. Mm-hmm. That, that's interesting numbers on that one. Yeah, yeah, it's quite a bit higher, I think, than, than we were thinking it, it might have been. Um, I think people have sort of gained a lot more confidence, whether false or, or not, about um, gathering and, and risk and, and that sort of thing. Um, maybe people have had COVID, they've experienced it, um, they've had a number of boosters by this point, or they're just sort of uh, tired of, of adapting their holiday plans uh, for for another year and, and just ready to, to proceed um, as they were pre-pandemic. Another area of questioning, what if provincial governments and health authorities encouraged people not to gather with family unless, number one, everyone is from the same household, or number two, everyone is vaccinated? Interesting, the word vaccinated hadn't come up until now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so vaccinated, I think, is, is always a, an interesting uh, topic around the, the holiday dinner table and, and things like that. And it certainly does bring a sense of uh, security, I think, especially for folks who are also vaccinated themselves. Um, but 
sort of is now, I think, part of that that conversation where folks were able to get vaccinated last Christmas as well and, and last holiday season. And so just to see sort of the numbers change um, just so drastically when um, no no new health interventions have come in place since 2021, uh, I think really more speaks to comfort levels, maybe experience with getting COVID themselves, or just a little bit of fatigue. Here's my question. Are holiday celebrations back to pre-pandemic intentions? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, if the, the holiday party scene uh, this past week has uh, said anything, um, people are, are back gathering, back doing things. I think um, that'll certainly be interesting to see, I think, between now and an actual sort of holiday break, the sort of the, the critical path about um, how many folks encounter sickness um, as they start to get together more and more. That's really certainly ramping up uh, now already. Um, and, and to see what, what folks' comfort levels are um, as illness will, will likely inevitably enter many of our homes during the season. Oksana, does the tone of this survey and the responses, does it surprise you at all that, that most Canadians at this point, after, what, two and a half, almost three years of COVID <laughs> that, and restrictions and lockdowns, that they really are just going saying... Uh, warnings be darned, I'm going to do what I want this this holiday season. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, for me personally, not not surprising. I think people have uh, felt as though they sacrificed a lot um, in terms of gathering, in terms of experiences, in terms of um, just missing out on, on a number of years of, of their lives, for young people especially, um, and that they're sort of... Um, uh, we're kind of in a, a sort of status where things haven't really changed on the COVID front for a number of times. So like I said before, people are getting um, comfortable with sort of the status quo of what that looks like now and, and what the COVID sort of scene is. And um, they're saying that, that this is, is likely going to be a reality for some time. And so they're, they're going to get comfortable with it and they're going to, to start sort of living the life um, that they were leaving, or leading, sorry, before before this all happened. And who is this survey for? So the results are out, and, and we've chatted about it, and the, the idea is that we're getting from this, the Canadians are just going to do what they wish, and they want to be together, mm-hmm. they want to get together, and they will take on the risks and deal with it if they end up becoming ill after they get together. But who is this survey for? Who reads it? Who should read it? Yeah, so the survey was done um, sort of out of our own pocket, so for Canadians and for for media and for anyone to consume and sort of look at. Um, but I think it's important um, for for different for Canadians to, to see this, um, for Canadians who are looking together, maybe Canadians who aren't looking together. Um, but I think it's also important uh, public health information um, for public health officials to have is that um, if Canadians sort of are intending to gather. Um, maybe some of them going to be extra cautious and maybe looking for those different ways that they can be a little bit safer. Um, that messaging needs to be sort of meeting Canadians where they're at, which is um, that they're not going to be at home. <laughs> they're going to be, be somewhere else um, and, and doing things with others. So so had a message for that. Excellent. Holiday celebrations reborn. Where can people go to find more details about the survey? Yeah, so they can visit our website at abacusdata.ca. Oksana Kishchuk, Director, Strategy and Insights, Abacus Data. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Thank you. The family business is one of this country's economic drivers, but can it survive the next generation? Tina Cortez with The Digital Reality. This next story is about the family business and the seismic shift in ownership that KPMG is suggesting will happen. It's just a matter of time. 
Joining the feed, Dino Infanti, National Leader for Enterprise Tax at KPMG in Canada. Dino, how many family businesses were surveyed and what did the findings reveal about the next generation? Yeah, there, there was about 503 business owners uh, that were surveyed. And uh, you know, one of the most significant uh, you know, things that came out of this poll certainly was, uh, as you opened up, the, the, the shift, if you will, um, in, the, in the family business landscape. And really what's new here is the dramatic shift uh, that's expected over the next three years really um, is the headline. And, Succession planning and transitioning, uh, basically to the, you know, the the next generation of leaders, really. And there was what nearly eight in ten that uh, said they're developing a succession plan or expecting to transition the family business. And what do you think is driving this shift? Yeah, um, there's really three things. Um, certainly, the new digital realities. Um, I, I think that's key. Um, I would suggest that. You know, the ripple effects uh, stemming from the pandemic and the disruption and really, you know, sort of interplayed with that is the disruption and the need to adapt to the current economic uncertainties. And I think thirdly, it's purely demographics, you know, retirement of baby boomers and uh, exiting the business. And how many of these businesses do you think will survive the next generation? How many are being, you know, sold or shut down? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the poll didn't specifically uh, talk about that particular uh, question, but, but ultimately, um, one of the things that came stemmed out of the poll certainly was optimism, quite frankly. Um, you know, and yes, there's some headwinds uh, in front of us here, um, but the survey did indicate that, look, there's, what, 71% of the respondents indicated they're going to raise capital, and but almost 60% said that uh, they plan to make acquisitions in the next three years, so uh, looking for really growth opportunities. And what does the next generation bring to these long-time businesses? Yeah, I, I think it goes back to what I said earlier. I mean, really, um, what's important in the next generation of business leaders is the their um, skill set as it relates to technological advancement and really transformational leadership that is really the keys to help driving these family-owned businesses into the, 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 the next uh, cycle of business. Have these family businesses been able to create an achievable succession plan, do you think? Well, it goes back to planning, right? Mm-hmm. You know, failing to plan is planning to fail. And um, <clears throat> what's important is, is certainly starting early, um, you know, and, and, and assessing and working in the, you know, many of them working in the business, but working on the business. And most family business operators are fantastic operators, but when it comes to succession, it's a whole new territory. And uh, it's important to kind of consider not only the you know the financial, the tax, the legal, but also obviously just as important family dynamics. And what did you hear? What do you think is the focus of this new generation for their family business? Is it about you know the environment? Uh, is there something more to it? Is it about their own succession planning? What did you hear from them? Yeah, you know, the other interesting piece that, that stemmed from the poll was, you know, well, look, you know, what, nearly 8 in 10 of the uh, leaders are either developing succession plan, as, as I said, 
but um, there is what about 26 percent of, of the respondents that indicated that they do plan to sell. I mean, and that's a big, big decision, right? So, and and why is that? I mean, look, the desire to sell may reflect the next gen leaders who perhaps are less interested in running the existing family business and and perhaps more interested in managing the family wealth or setting up new businesses or pursuing philanthropy, for example. And what did the findings show in terms of men versus women in leading the family business forward? Yeah, that, that was quite that was quite noticeable um, in terms of dissecting uh, the responses uh, in terms of gender differences. I think, you know, what stemmed from, from those questions, certainly, um, you know, women family business leaders are not waiting for the environment to change around them. You know, um, they're really transformational leaders and, uh, you know, uh, they represent the changes they want to see in their business and the family and society. So, 72%, I believe, of women versus, say, 51% of men are more likely to integrate ESG and see it tied to pay and financial performance. So I thought that was quite interesting. And then I also um, um, 70% of women indicated that diversity and inclusion is moving too slowly in contrast to 63% of the men. So were you encouraged by these findings? Yeah, I mean, I mean, these 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 findings are, uh, are are quite positive and quite telling. I mean, uh, you know, family-owned businesses and enterprise in Canada are an integral part of uh, the economic engine, and, uh, and and it's good to see that uh, you know uh, the respondents uh, provided their feedback on these specific questions. And how would you compare this survey to previous ones on this very topic? Yeah, I mean, I mean, like I said, I mean this. You know, the subject of succession in family business is not a new topic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's lots of, you know, articles and blogs, etc. over the years that have been written on the subject. And really what was telling here was that the new three-year time frame, if you will, in which our polling revealed that families either, you know, wish to transition the business or to, at a minimum put a plan in place. What are the top three takeaways from this survey about the future of the family business? Uh, number one would be, um, you know, uh, where, where you're owning and operating a family business, you know, thinking about uh, uh, succession, you know, and if that's in the cards and the family dynamics suggest uh, that uh, that would be supportable, then thinking about um, what that plan looks like, number one. Number two, um, in terms of family businesses and uh, the current economic environment, this is when uh, potentially growth is to occur. Thinking about, you know, shoring up your balance sheet, you know, focusing on, you know, high margin products, uh, cash flow, and then that equates to potentially opportunities to acquire, um, you know, uh, businesses at more favorable prices. Dino, if our listeners want more information about the survey, where can they find it? Yeah, I would direct them to uh, our website at KPMG, so www.kpmg.ca. Dino Infanti is the National Leader for Enterprise Tax at KPMG in Canada. Dino, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. After the break, the Edmonton Modeling Agency with a difference. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region.
Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Kevin Frankish is next with the Edmonton Modeling Agency that's making a difference. This is an incredible idea. Can't wait to tell you about it. There's a couple out of Edmonton. They've created a modeling agency that exclusively represents disabled and visibly different talent. Katie McMillan is uh, one of the ones running this agency and joins me right now to explain. Hi, Katie. Hi, how are you doing today? I am doing well. This is really interesting. So explain to me your your client base. You're, you're talking disabled and visibly different. Yes. Um, so just, and maybe you were going to ask this, but I do always feel like it's worth telling the backstory of my personal connection to how I ended up here and doing this um, is just based on the fact that I have three kids and my middle daughter is 12 years old. Um, her name is Kelty and she um, she was born um, with some trauma at birth, which resulted in a diagnosis of cerebral palsy. She has, um, she's a wheelchair user, and she has some motor speech delay and some spasticity in her um, right hand. And it is through my experiences of being her mom that have truly led me um, to what we're doing with our agency. And to your question, the clientele or the people that we are supporting right now are folks who um, identify as disabled and visibly different. Um, we also include as well as in there's um, a couple of folks on our, our roster who have limb differences, um, who have some uh, facial differences as in like perhaps like a port wine birthmark um, or something like that that perhaps prior to you know where we're at societally now uh, have been stigmatized um, in, in our world and we'd like to change that. What's the response been? Oh my goodness. Um, in a word that what we're doing is needed. <laughs> people have, uh, the people we've been in contact with have really just um, said or responded by saying, you know, we see that this gap exists. And by this gap, I mean, you know, representation of disability as something other than tragic or something other than inspirational. You know, those tragedy and inspiration tropes, especially within the disabled community, are really overdone, and um, we're trying to change that, and I think people recognize it needs to be changed, but perhaps are not quite sure how to do that, um, and we just want to be the support um, for folks in the industry and for people that want to enter the industry alike um, to help make sure that, that that gap is bridged. So the response has been that it's needed and that and that what we're doing is, is going to be really helpful and important. <laughs> so what are some of the products or items that your people are advertising? Oh my goodness, um, anything and everything. I mean, okay, to be fair, when we started this, we really thought that we would stay in our lane of like print modeling, like in the traditional sense, uh, but it quickly expanded um, as in, as we got to know some of the folks who were interested in entering this industry and maybe perhaps had previously been met by systemic barriers, you know, um, there's all kinds of things like um, digital creation. Digital content creation is a big one because a lot of disabled individuals find digital content creation uh, a very accessible way to promote themselves and promote products. Um, we also have, you know, um, product-based businesses who want to be more inclusive of the product they're selling. For example, we did um, a lovely photo shoot here with a, a camping gear store uh, in Edmonton um, that wanted to kind of show that, you know, camping isn't just for people who are non-disabled, it can be for anyone. Um, we did, um, we connected with a clothing designer um, in Edmonton who, um, Emmy DeVoe, for folks from Edmonton, they know her for sure, um, who just wanted to 
show the fact that her clothing can be, you know, trendy and sexy for any body type and any ability. Um, and anybody, whether you're sitting down or standing up or using a crutch or a cane, right? It doesn't matter. Um, so yeah, we were, we did a, 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 with a ice cream, uh, company based in Edmonton that locally produces some, um, some ice cream here really popular. And they wanted to show that, you know, they have an, like their locations, their two locations are accessible and that the staff know ASL and are willing to serve customers who are, um, you know, uh, visually impaired or, or hard of hearing or whatever that may be. What's really interesting is that this is really on point when it comes to modeling because modeling scouts are always looking for the unusual, the unique, the something that has not been seen before. And so this just fits right in with that. It does. And I think it's so interesting that you bring that up because we definitely recognize that the folks that we represent are like visually different and, and so unique and interesting to, to look at, which is important part of what makes them beautiful. I mean, it's a fine line too, because we're very careful to not be othering. Like we don't want to, you know, make a spectacle out of somebody who is different. So it's this, it's interesting dynamic of like wanting to increase representation to make it more mainstream. But as I kind of already said, like our goal is to truly to normalize it, it's to make it less weird or strange or scary. And, and truly, if you haven't had a disabled person in your life, it, it is a little bit strange or scary because it's, it's, you don't know until you work with somebody that, that identifies as disabled. And then once you do, you sort of start to go, oh, like, this isn't weird or scary. This is just like, it's just part of being part of the human experience. So, um, it's, but it's a great point because, you know, having an ad campaign where you include a visually different person or a disabled person is, is eye-catching and interesting as well and, and beautiful and sexy and professional and all the things it should be. So, uh, One last question. So is your daughter, Kelty, uh, one of your clients? Uh, she is on our roster, absolutely. What kind of mother would I be if I didn't get on our <laughs> roster? Um, I actually, we just got back from Toronto uh, over the weekend. We were there for Toronto Kids Fashion Week, and she was on the runway, rolling the runway with her and two other disabled um, models, um, Madison uh, Ambos and Nico Yema, and they did a fabulous job of representing what it means to be disabled and beautiful um, and awesome. So. All right, so if someone's interested in working for you or working with you, how do they get in touch with you? Oh, check out our website or our Instagram. It's Kello, which is K-E-L-L-O, like hello, uh, kelloinclusive.org um, as our website, and our Instagram is just at kelloinclusive. And uh, sending us a message through either of those platforms, um, we would love to hear from you. All right, Katie McMillan, thank you so much for this. Appreciate it. Good luck. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We'll talk to you soon. Next, the good works of Hockey Fights Cancer. Our Jim Lang has more. Well, there are great teams in the NHL, but right now the greatest team might be the NHL, the NHLPA, and the Canadian Cancer Society teaming up to do some good in the community, in the world, with their hashtag Same Team campaign to help raise funds and awareness for cancer. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by their senior manager, fundraising communications, Jessa Morrison. Jessa, how are you? I'm great, Jim. How are you? Fine, thank you. As a hockey fan and hockey historian, um, cancer has hit the hockey community and hockey fans around the world hard in the last year and a half with the loss of Guy Lafleur, Mike Bossy, Dale Howard, Chuck, and others. It's 
it's hard, but it just goes to show you, even though hockey players are viewed as superhuman, they're like the rest of us, and they can fall to cancer like anyone else, and that's why this work that the Canadian Cancer Society is doing with the league, to me, is so important. It is so important, and it's actually just a kind of recognition of the work that we've done with our partners at the NHL and the NHLPA for for a number of years now with our annual Hockey Fights Cancer um, our Hockey Fights Cancer Initiative that takes place each November, and and um, we just thought that this year we could kind of really hone in on exactly that message that you're talking about, is that when it comes to cancer, we're all on the same team, we're all affected by it, uh, including hockey players. So no matter what jersey we wear, no matter who we cheer for, um, that when it does come to cancer and supporting the people who have been affected by the disease, you know, we can all come together and we're all on the same team. And Justin, some of the videos were just heart-wrenching, and we see these players and think of them as one thing, but we forget that they have families and parents and brothers and sisters and spouses and partners, and when they hold up the sign and talk about why they're fighting for cancer and why it means so much to them, that's that's them dropping the veil and seeing the real them. And it, you can see how much this has affected their, their lives and their families. It's right. It's it's nice to sometimes be able to see, you know, our, all of our heroes and as much as we want to, you know, um, look up to them and we do look up to them and, and they're obviously extremely, you know, skilled on the ice and, and, and play for all of our favorite teams. But it is nice to see them kind of like, you know, let us in a little bit to some of those experiences that, again, many of us can relate to. One in two Canadians will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. And so, so many of us, uh, myself included, have have gone through that journey either with a close loved one or a friend or a colleague, uh, and it doesn't escape people like uh, NHL players. And so it is nice for them to kind of like open up to us and and let us see that and and know that you know they're experiencing some of the same things that we are. Speaking with Jessa Morrison from the Canadian Cancer Society about their hashtag Same Team campaign with the NHL alumni, NHLPA, and the NHL. And that's the one thing that's great to see, that the league, the league association, the ex-players, all coming together to help out the Canadian Cancer Society because that's the the great equalizer. Athlete, non-athlete, rich, poor, young, old, the cancer doesn't, it doesn't discriminate. It hits everyone. It, it certainly doesn't. And, and that's a great point is that, you know, we do have this ongoing relationship with the NHL and the PA that we've had, uh, for many years now, but this this campaign we are actually able to um, connect and, and collaborate with the Alumni Association, which was NewTAS, and so uh, it was so great to um, you know to be able to work with them and and be in touch with those families uh, and understand a little bit about what they're going through in our conversations about including their their loved ones uh, in the video itself. So uh, I know we've had some conversations with Martin Lafleur. Um, and throughout this process, and it's been really great to kind of bring in, yes, those former players who may be doing different things in their lives now, but certainly still an important part of the hockey community. Well, well said, Jess. And, you know, the people listening right now can join this hashtag same team and be part of the campaign and basically show their support for their favorite current and past hockey personalities, post a photo of you wearing your favorite team jersey, Use the hashtag same team, tag Cancer Society, NHL, NHLPA, and any of your friends so they can join in the fun and we can spread the word through social media. And this is where social media can do some good, Jessa. 
That's right. I mean, we all, we, you know, we all have a lot of fun with social media and it's, you know, we're always scrolling through our Instagram, um, it seems. I am anyway. So <laughs> this is a nice opportunity for us to kind of engage with our online community uh, for a great cause. Now, wait a sec. Those, uh, my wife and I are hooked in those cat and dog videos in Instagram, so I get that. <laughs> There's no judgment here, Jessica. Well, Jessa. maybe next year we'll have to bring some, some cute animals into the campaign <laughs> and, and see where that takes us. I, you know, you, you mentioned it earlier. Here we are about to go into 2023 and all the, you know, uh, the intense medical advancements we've had as a country and as a society. And still the numbers, the one and two number about Canadians getting cancer, it, it, you hear that. Well, whoa. No matter what we do, it's it's still a part of our lives and still something we're fighting. It's it's absolutely true. And at the Canadian Cancer Society, you know, we talk about this a lot. And 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 what we are encouraged by is um, just the that we know that people are living longer and fuller lives with or beyond cancer. And so we do know that the huge strides that we're making in Canada and, and globally um, through research and and uh, advocacy efforts um, to, you know, support uh, public policy that we do that see people are definitely being diagnosed, um, but we are um, able to, we see the five-year survival rate increasing and increasing uh, each year, and we're, we're so encouraged by that, and just the quality of life that people are able to have while living with cancer because of some of the really, really brightest minds that are focused on 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 all of these great, um, great advancements in, in cancer research. Just in your involvement with the hashtag same team campaign, was there a current or former player that you got to know that surprised you how much you connected with them and how enjoyable they were to work with? I think that, um, from, from my understanding with, um, some of our team members who were, were working, uh, much more closely with, with the players, uh, I, actually shocked me how many players wanted to be involved and so uh you know you may think you know we know about Saku Koibu and we know about Mario Lemieux mm-hmm. and obviously the families of of Mike Bossy and Gideon Lafleur who are all tremendously willing to kind of be a part of this but then you think about people like you know Connor McDavid who may not have a direct con um, you know a direct experience yet he's young we know that he recognizes that probably in his lifetime he'll be impacted by this um but um you know there's, but he's had experiences with the great Edmonton Oilers young fan who passed away earlier this year, and that touched him, and so he wanted to be involved uh, for those reasons. And so I think that, again, what, as we were, we've been talking about, is that no one escapes this. And so um, even if it's not your close family member, uh, you hear these stories of, of families who are affected, and, and no one's kind of um, immune to the impact that that might have on your heart. And the reason why you might want to get involved. It is the ultimate team, the Canadian Cancer Society, the NHL, the NHLPA, and the NHL alumni with the hashtag same team campaign fighting cancer. Jessa, thank you so much for you and your staff and everything you're doing and keep up the great work and uh, just outstanding team and outstanding partnership for the future. Wonderful. And Jim, I have heard that you have been a longtime supporter of Hockey Fights Cancer, so I just want to thank you as well for everything that you've done and for bringing some awareness to this, uh, for this, um, 
for this campaign for us. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. Without getting too emotional, my I lost my uncle Frank a number of years ago to cancer, and it was it affected our family. And I had a cousin Steve who survived cancer. So, like anyone else listening, anyone else you deal with, the cancer hits all of us. So it's it's the least I can do. I appreciate the kind words. Okay, thanks, Jim. If you missed any part of the feed, go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.